Lord Jesus Christ. Its main purpose is, is teaching. It feels a little bit more like an informal Sunday school, a little more dialogical as we seek to consider some of these great truths and doctrines that have been handed down to us and that we see most importantly revealed in Scripture. So to that end, I'd encourage you to stand for our call to worship, which comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And this is arguably the most ancient of our confessions. This is what the ancient Hebrews would confess together in the synagogues and the early church continued this practice. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is traditionally referred to as a Shema in James chapter 2 when James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Many, many scholars think that James is referring to them reciting the Shema in corporate worship. So confessing one's faith is a very biblical idea and part of the purpose of this, this service, as I mentioned, is to grow up into this confession that we believe in our hearts and confess with our, mouth, our mouths. Well, please uh, take your Psalter hymnal and turn to 22a as we seek to continue to praise our God using the words of Psalm 22. So 22a will be singing stanzas 1 through 4.
You may be seated. Well, towards the end of this month, the Christian church will, some segments of the Christian church will be celebrating Ascension Day. And the Lord, our Lord's ascension is one aspect of his work on our behalf that doesn't get a lot of attention. We think a lot about his birth at Christmas, his death on Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter. But the ascension of Christ doesn't get, get much attention at all. And I think a lot of us may not fully really recognize its significance or importance. And so to that end, we'll be praying together a prayer which focuses our attention on this glorious aspect of Christ's ascension into heaven, where he leaves this earth bodily, not to return again until his second coming. So please follow along with me in your order of worship as we pray, not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, Almighty God, although we could not ascend to your holy place, your Son descended to save us. After he won our redemption, he ascended to the seat of all authority and dominion at your right hand to plead our cause before your throne, to guarantee our place in heaven by taking our own flesh there in him, and to rule over all his and our enemies. He did all this for our salvation and the glory of your holy name. Help us to receive and make known throughout the world this good news that Christ Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and fill our hearts with longing expectation for his return in power and glory to restore all things. This we pray in the name of Christ our King. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. Today we're going to be considering particularly God's response to our first parent's sin in the garden and the, the curse and the judgment that ensues. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24, and this picks up the narrative after Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. And this is God's response to that first sin. We read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and, his wa- and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write this word upon our hearts once again this morning. Well, please take your order of worship out as we now will consider a Lord's Day 4, which is question and answers 9 through 11 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Again, we are continuing in the guilt or the sin section of this catechism. This catechism has those three main sections, which... Um, follow Paul's pattern in many of his epistles and even the book of Romans itself. The book of Romans is structured guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so we are continuing to reflect upon our guilt and our sin before a holy God. So question and answers 9 through 11. I'll read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 9 asks, But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question 10 asks, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity. Having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Question 11 asks, but isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Well, as I mentioned, we are continuing our way through the guilt or the sin section of this catechism. And so far, we have considered sins, uh, sin revealed. Sin is revealed chiefly through the law. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, uh, 20, that the law brings knowledge of our sin. We then consider the origin of sin. Origin of sin is not found in God. God is not the author of sin, but rather the origin of sin is found in our first parents' disobedience and sin in in the Garden of Eden. We then looked at 
uh, sin's effect. We all, by virtue of being connected to the first Adam, have poisoned natures and thus are totally unable in our natural state to do ultimate good. That's what we looked at last week. And now we're looking at sin's consequences, which is the judgment of God. One thing that we see throughout Scripture is God judges sin. We read about that in Genesis 3. As you continue to read on in, in the Old Testament, you see many judgments upon Israel, judgments upon the foreign nations, especially in the prophets. comes to the New Testament, we have uh, clear references to that future day of judgment when Christ will return a second time bodily. And we hear Jesus speak about this everlasting torment and punishment and wrath that those who are apart from him will experience in the age to come. One thing we, we do read a lot about is God's judgment, God's judgment against sin. So if you could, one way to summarize this Lord's Day is, is this. This Lord's Day is, is considering the question, is God's judgment against sin just? There's no question that there, the Bible speaks to God judging sin. So the question is, is God's judgment against sin just? There are many people who have critiqued and continue to critique and object to what Scripture says about God's judgment on the grounds that it's unjust. It makes God a tyrant, abusive, terrible. Um, it's a terrible being. And so that's what we want to look at today. Is God's judgment against sin just? I especially want us to consider that question in light of what we read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. So first, I'd like us to consider God's justice in creation. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we, we considered what it meant for Adam and Eve to be made in God's image and likeness. You guys remember some of the components of what, what that refers to? What does it mean for Adam and Eve to be made in the image and likeness of God? Yes. God endowed them with, with a certain being, or you could even say ontology. They had these attributes, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So they were called to be, be a certain type of people. Being male and female, also it is a manifold witness. Yes. Not... No one person has all of the image. The image, yeah, the image is a manifold thing. Very good. Another huge component, component that we see in Genesis 1 is the doing aspect. There's the being aspect that we've been endowed with certain attributes. But then we've call, we all, uh, Adam was also called to the right use of those attributes. So being and doing. We see that explicitly in Genesis 1, 26. God says, let us make man in our image and likeness so that, purpose, so that he might exercise dominion over all creation. So Adam and Eve were called with 
to do a certain work, a type of work. Part of that work was exercising dominion. Uh, we see part of that work was being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, Genesis 1.28. Part of that work involved working and keeping the garden specifically, Genesis 2.15. So they're given a task. They were called to do work. And the law of God was sort of the job description of that work. And the law of God was written upon Adam's heart. That's what we read in Romans 2. All human beings, by virtue of creation, have the law of God written upon their hearts. So that was true of Adam. So Adam was, was endowed with attributes, but then he was also called to do a certain type of work. And we also know that there was a great goal that Adam was given. He wasn't placed in the garden just to work perpetually with no end date. He was given the hope of reward. The tree of life symbolized this great seventh-day Sabbath rest that God had promised him upon the condition of him completing his work. But um, contrastly, there was also the threat of death. If he disobeyed, he would earn the curse and judgment of God. So the image involves being, involves doing, with the great hope of that everlasting reward or everlasting death if he disobeys. Now, God made Adam with the ability to keep and do the law. Part of being made in the image of God is we, uh, Adam was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So, uh, so he had the ability to actually perform the law. It's not as if God, you know, think of a fifth grade teacher. A fifth grade teacher comes into class and gives his or her students a, a college physics exam. The students and parents could rightly object, that's not just. That does not fit their ability whatsoever. That's not what God did with Adam. It's not as if he was giving Adam, a fifth grader, a college physics exam. You know, he was giving Adam an exam, as it were, a law that fit his capacity, fit who he was as a creature, and Adam was created with the ability to actually obey and complete that law. Again, it's like a teacher giving his or her students a, a, an exam that fits their capacity, their stage of learning, uh, covering material that they've covered in class. And God, so God is just in requiring Adam to keep his law, and God continues to be just in requiring obedience of all human beings uh, uh, subsequently. You might say, well, that's not, we can maybe say that God was just in requiring obedience from Adam, but we're sinful. We can't perfectly obey the law. How is that just? Well, why can't we obey the law? Sin. And whose fault is sin? It's not God's fault. That's our fault. So the reason why we can't keep the law is not God's fault or responsibility. That's our fault. Our responsibility. So we see right away God's justice in creation, meaning the fact that God has endowed creation with a moral order and requires his image bearers to keep that law is not unjust, but rather very just of him. And that's what question and answer nine is getting at. God is not unjust by requiring us as image bearers to keep his law. So we see God's justice in creation. And in, in, immediately at creation, God, uh, we see God giving us this one path to salvation. One path to salvation is the way of the law. Doing this work perfectly, you inherit, attain that seventh-day Sabbath rest. After the fall, we see that he adds a second path to salvation, the way of faith, uh, through a mediator who keeps that law. 
But it's not unjust of God to say that one path to salvation is a way of the law. In fact, that is the only path of salvation because our mediator has to walk that path for us in our stead. We also see God's justice and judgment. And this is the focal point that I want us to consider. God's justice and judgment. In Genesis 2.17, God threatens Adam and Eve and says, On the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. He threatens death upon breach of this covenant. So Adam and Eve should not have been surprised when they disobeyed and God came in judgment. They should have expected that because God told them in very explicit terms that this is what would happen. Now this judgment of God that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is twofold. Judgment in time and judgment in eternity. Judgment in time and in eternity. So part of this judgment of God in Genesis 3 is temporal judgment, meaning it affects our life in the here and now, in this age, in this present creation. So that's what I'd like us to consider first, God's um, justice in this temporal judgment. We'll see that in Genesis 3, God begins this judgment in verse 8. You know, verse 8, that... Uh, verse that we're probably familiar with where God comes in the cool of the day. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. This is not the God taking a stroll on, on a, a pleasant sunny spring day in the garden. This is judgment language. This is God coming in the spirit of the day of judgment. That day of judgment that we read about in Revelation when people who are outside of Christ will be calling upon the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them to save them from the wrath of God. This is the sound, the sound of the Lord is not the, the pleasant, sweet voice, a pleasant, sweet voice. This is the sound of the Lord that thunders through creation and terrifies every creature that hears it. God strolling or walking in the garden is the same word that's used in Jonah when Jonah's on the ship and the storm is raging. The storm is raging. The waves are raging. And it literally says, is, is um, walking, uh, strolling to and fro. So this is judgment language. God is coming in judgment because his image bearers broke his covenant and entered into this new relationship and covenant with this serpent. So he's coming in judgment. He begins this curse upon the serpent. And he says to the serpent that he's going to place this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which this is a good thing. <laughs> In Adam and Eve's first sin, what they did is they broke their covenant with God and basically entered into this new covenant with the serpent, this new relationship with the serpent. And God promises that he's breaking that relationship. There's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But then he turns his attention to Adam and Eve. And what's the main curse or judgment that he issues towards Eve? Childbirth. And what aspect of, of, of the creational mandate is that connected to? Right. Be fruitful and multiply. What, what is the main curse or judgment that God gives Adam? Toil. And what aspect of the creation mandate is that tied to? Work, exercising dominion. Genesis 2.15, Adam is placed in the garden to work and keep the garden. 
So notice that both aspects of this judgment to Adam and Eve are explicitly tied to the creation mandate, to what it means to be in the image of God. Being fruitful and multiplying will now be painful. Working the ground for food is now going to be toilsome and laborious. And I mentioned that God had given Adam that great goal telos of seventh-day Sabbath rest. And in verse 19, what's going to be the telos or end of man now? Verse 19. Death. Yeah, dust. Physical death. Their hope of entering that seventh-day Sabbath rest has been cut off as of now. We also see God's common grace, benevolence present here in this curse and judgment. What, what are some ways in which we see God's kindness, benevolence? In, uh, in, that it's coming through the seed, that the promise is coming through the seed, because if, if like we were just talking before this, uh, if like begets like, sinful man begets sinful man, and the children, the seed, the posterity, they could all say, this seems so unfair, what did I do? Adam sinned. And, but then to hear that God's answer would be redemption coming through the seed, of course, speaking of Messiah, but that there is a tone of compassion um, yeah. uh, about the results of the fall and what they needed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the biggest word of grace. Um, anything else? I think the fact that this happened at all is grace. Mm -hmm. I mean, because this could have just been like, lights out. Yeah. There, right. There will be fruit of the harvest. Could not mean children. Could not be growing. Stars. Yeah. So I think um, maybe we're not there yet with verse 22. The fact that verse 22 cuts off into action, right? So God is talking about. I mean, the fact that we turn to dust is is um, is grace. Right, mm -hmm. Because in verse 22 he talks about lest, lest he live forever. Yeah. And then he doesn't even finish that sentence. He removes us from the garden so we mm -hmm. have no access to the tree of life. Right. The, this temporal death is, is, uh, is a mercy. Right. Yeah, the fact that there's children, we will continue to reproduce. He doesn't just shut the wombs right then and there. He doesn't just cut off all food supply right then and there. So in the very judgment and curse itself is God's common grace, meaning you will still have children even though it's painful. You will still have bread to eat even though it's toilsome to, to, um, to harvest it. So even in the judgment itself, you see God's benevolence. He could have just, lights out, it's done, it's over, final judgment now. Could have done that. But he's decided to delay that final judgment which uh, we'll get to a bit later. And, and this sometimes is referred to as God's common grace. Common grace in, in distinction to special grace. Special grace refers to that uh, God's undeserved blessings that we receive through Christ, redemption, forgiveness of sins. Common refers to these general blessings that we have as virtue of, by virtue of being human beings. So it's not just for us as Christians, it's for non-Christians as well. Their grace, in a sense, is undeserved blessings. We don't merit the rainfall. 
the sun shining upon us. So it's God's goodness that he displays generally towards all people. And um, so we see aspects of that even in this, this temporal judgment that's present here. Now, would you say that this temporal judgment, not thinking yet about everlasting judgment, but just this temporal judgment, is that just of God to do? Your head's nodding yes. <laughs> I, I, I'll put it this way. Who are we to say? Yeah. I mean, I, we live in a society that's ever increasingly trying to create versions to point and say, hey, God is not the full creator of who we are. So we can be at liberty to do these things here and here. Or, oh, well, God's judgment is flawed because it's not perfect. So therefore, eh, we can defer on some of these things. It's, society is always in a perpetual state of, well, no. They're always trying to create, push, they're always pushing against the, uh, the, the severity, the harshness, the absoluteness of the culture. Yeah, thank you for those those comments. I think if any if anything, this seems lax, doesn't it? <laughs> when you when you're looking at it just from pure justice, it seems lax. And so that leads us to to consider God's justice and everlasting judgment. This is temporal judgment. We also see God's everlasting judgment. Again, in Genesis 2.17, God threatened death to Adam and Eve. We see the partial fulfillment of that in chapter 3, verse 19. To dust you shall return. Physical death. But it's not explicit here in Genesis 3, but elsewhere in Scripture, as we see New Testament authors looking back upon, upon this, um, this passage, this also is referring to everlasting death. So, for instance, Romans 6.23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, our, uh, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice the parallelism there. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ is eternal life. So if the solution to our depravity, to our sin, to the curse of death is eternal life, it would seem to make sense then the problem is also of an eternal nature, an everlasting nature. Right? If the, the benefit, the solution, has this everlasting eternal nature, it would seem to make sense that the curse and the problem also would be an everlasting and eternal curse or judgment as well. So this is where the main criticism of God's judgment being unjust comes from. The idea that God could contemn, con condemn, judge human beings for temporal sin, sins committed in this present creation, with an everlasting, no end, eternal judgment that's far worse than any judgment one could imagine in this life. So for instance, I was this even this week listening to an interview by a very prominent New Testament scholar who is a big weight when it comes to 
New Testament studies who was talking, he recently came out with a book on health, and he posited a very popular argument against God's judgment, God's wrath, God's hell. Like, how in the world is it fair for someone who lives, let's say, 30 or 40 years and lives a generally decent life according to society standards, makes mistakes, of course, but then is punished with 30, 40 plus trillion years of everlasting torment, wrath, and judgment. And he kind of just laughed it off. That's laughable. How could that be just? How could God judge Adam's one sin? He eats an apple with everlasting death, condemnation, and judgment. A temporal sin being judged with everlasting death. The, the, the balances don't quite seem to match. It's sort of like someone stealing a candy bar from the cash register in the grocery store, or the checkout line, and getting the death penalty. That's basically what this objection says. So what would, what would be your response to that? It's comparing time for time. If it took me, if, if like, you know, we sentence people to prison, for example, for things that they've done, and, um, but if I were to kill somebody, and it only took me a split second to pull a trigger, should I spend a split second in prison? It's not comparing, you know, the, the, looking at the quality, it's looking at just the time. You know, you got you got to measure what the damage done of your sin is compared to the punishment. And when you sin against an eternal, holy, righteous God, the true measurement is eternal. Yeah, Micah. Sam Amson points out that there's a, a direct correlation between the sin and the one violated. In other words, if I kill an ant because I'm mad that the ant is eating my house, or I shoot a dog. Excellent. What late, what, oh, Cheryl? Um, the fact that God is perfect, if his justice wasn't perfect, then it wouldn't be God and the justice of the Bible and his word and all that he's done would have been flawed. Because there would always be that little caveat of uh, somewhere where you could go. Mm -hmm. And so he, by his perfect justice, because he is perfect and he can't say so, um, is 
but it's invalid. Yeah. And people say the word is invalid. No one thinks it's mistakes, but it's because God is just, and because God is perfect, but the word is also yeah, thank you. In question and answer 11, so if you look at your, your catechism questions, what language, so uh, what language in the answer gets at basically the main response that, that you guys have put forward? And what's the next phrase? Supreme ad. Yes. Very helpful language. So it's getting at exactly what number of you have put forward. The reason why that objection doesn't hold water is because it, it, it leaves out of reference who it is that we're sinning against. This is the supreme majesty of God and therefore requires necessarily a supreme penalty. Exactly what the argument is missing and, and what Ben said to our own legal system recognizes that. The nature and Micah said the same thing, the nature of the, the offended party partly determines the severity of the crime. And when we're talking about the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the holy supreme being, of course it's going, we're going to get the books thrown at us, as it were. The supreme majesty requires the supreme penalty of body and soul. And so I love that language. I think it's very helpful for us uh, in response to that objection because that is a, a, ver a very common objection to God's judgment and wrath when it comes to this issue. Well, you'll notice that uh, this Lord's Day concludes the guilt or sin section of our catechism. Next week, we'll transition to the grace section, which we'll be in for many, many weeks. But in order to, to sort of whet, whet our appetite for that transition, I'd like to end by briefly looking at where we see the gospel here in Genesis chapter 3. Or where we see God's mercy. You'll see question answer 11 says, isn't God also merciful? God is indeed merciful. I'd like us to briefly consider God's mercy beyond what we've already looked at. So in Genesis 3.15, Josh alluded to this briefly before. Uh, God promises that he will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But then he... Uh, says between uh, he says that this one male offspring of the woman will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This has traditionally been referred to as the proto euangelion meaning the first gospel, the first declaration of the gospel. The seed of the woman is the Messiah who would come and decisively crush the head of the serpent by paradoxically being bruised in the heel as he dies on the cross. So this is referring to Christ. This is the promise of that second path to salvation. If salvation is the way of the law, Christ now provides a mediator who will walk that path for us and in our stead. But if you look down in your Bibles to verse 20, what, what does Adam do in response to this word of God? Yes. Yeah, many commentators throughout history have seen this as a, a profession of faith of sorts by Adam. Adam's response to God's word and basically acknowledging that 
God is making a provision for them. The reason why he's delaying judgment, the reason why he's showing common grace to mankind, allowing children to continue to be born, bread to continue to grow, is so that this mediator can come and provide that way of salvation for God's people. So this is Adam acknowledging as a profession of faith that Eve, his wife, is not just the mother of all living in a general sense, but is the mother of the one who will bring life eternal for God's people. And then notice what, uh, what does God do in verse 21? It was an animal. This shows us, even in our narrative, we... We heard this, that when Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked, guilty, shameful, afraid. That's what their sin did to them. And here God graciously closed them with the skins of dead animals, covering their guilt, their shame, their sin, as it were. And this, what, what this shows us is that the way in which the people of God will be restored back into communion and fellowship with God is going to be through death the shedding of blood. Elsewhere in scripture we read uh, the forgiveness of sins can be accomplished in no other way than through the shedding of blood. Right here in verse 22 we, we are given this, this indication that our path to God is going to include the death, the shedding of blood of the seed of the woman so that we can be clothed, that we can be forgiven. And this is exactly where our, transition, our catechism transitions to. So the next few Lord's Days, we'll be thinking upon why it was necessary for Jesus to, have, to, to die. Couldn't he have done it some other way? Why did he have to come to this earth and die on a cross to satisfy God's justice? That's what we'll be looking at in the, in the weeks to come. Any further questions or comments on on this Lord's Day or Genesis chapter 3? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for your goodness to us in so many ways. We think of our own mothers on this Mother's Day and we, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of, of parents and um, the nurturing and inculcation of virtue and character that uh, they, they are responsible for. We pray that you would uh, continue to bless your word to us and to our hearing. We thank you for the gift of Christ who indeed has satisfied your justice. We thank you for your common grace, your benevolence that we see evidenced in so many ways. We thank you that you have indeed delayed this final judgment, and we pray that more and more people would hear this word and thus, uh, like Noah entering that ark, would enter the ark of Christ and be saved on that final day. How we continue to lift up the needs of your people, we pray for um, a missionary in uh, the Wilson's Know and in Kenya. We just pray that you continue to provide for them. We thank you for the progress that has been made as of late. We pray for the other concerns of of our people here, uh, the concerns have been left unnamed. We just pray for uh, your provision and your mercy upon us. And we pray, as we spe- especially as we go forth this day into another week, we ask that you'd help us uh, to look outside of ourselves for the good of our neighbor and your glory as we seek to interact with our neighbors around us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, please stand as we respond to what we've heard by uh, singing 226, Oh, the Deep Unbounded Riches. blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.